We're continuing with our How to Make Disciples series today as we look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, and as I was working on this message, I was reminded of a, a story from history. Um, and uh, I, I love history. Um, my mom was a teacher, a history teacher. My sister is a history teacher. My wife is a teacher and teaches our kids history. Um, but there was a story in history from uh, early to mid-1800s when Mexico had broken away from Spain with their independence. And a guy was in charge of Mexico. But there was another guy who was in charge of a chunk of the military who didn't like what that guy was doing. He wanted to be in charge. He thought he could do better than the guy in charge, which tends to happen. Um, it's happened throughout history um, uh, that certain individuals think they can do better than, who, than who's in charge. You know, Absalom thought he could do better than King David. Didn't turn out too well. Satan thought he could do better than God. That didn't turn out too well. Well, this guy's name was Santa Anna. Anybody ever heard of Santa Anna? Well, good. That's about ten of you. Uh, Santa Anna was this military leader, and he started communicating to people all throughout the Mexican territories uh, that I will, he said, I will make a better leader than this guy. And, and if you will back me in becoming the new leader, I will give you all kinds of freedom he won't. He just wants to oppress you. He just wants to beat you down. And he just wants to, to take away all your freedoms and rights. And so, all the, I mean, all these territories are hearing this, so naturally they back Santa Anna. And Santa Anna has this coup, and he takes over the Mexican government. And he becomes the man in charge. Well, as those territories found out, shown up, Santa Ana was lying. And he began to oppress all these territories worse than the guy before him. He began to try to consolidate power. Because since he had usurped power from the guy before, he was constantly paranoid somebody was going to do that to him. And so he cracked down on everybody everywhere. Well, at the time... Uh, Texas was a part of Mexico, and some of the Texans weren't thrilled with being oppressed. And so there began to be these battles and skirmishes. Texans raised up their own little army and began to fight against Santa Ana's forces at different places, um, and more often than not would get defeated in some of them. There's a famous battle in one, one area, though, uh, where they had been gifted this, this city had been gifted this cannon uh, to fight off some people uh, who were outlaws coming and were raiding and were killing people in town. So the, the government had gifted them this cannon to protect themselves. Well, Santa Ana's troops went to the town and said, give your cannon back. And famously, the town said, come and take it and fired a cannon shot. So if you've ever seen that picture with a cannon and the phrase, come and take it, that's where it comes from. Uh, but the Texans wanted to resist this oppression, this new dictator who had set himself up there. Well, Santa Ana was going to try to, you know, quell this rebellion. So he gathers his army and he begins to march up from central Mexico on into Texas to try to uh, uh, squash this Texan rebellion. Well, several things were going on in Texas at the time. Uh, a committee of Texans began to meet in this one hidden location. And uh, they were going to develop a declaration of independence similar to what America had done. And so they began to develop this. This committee was developing this over here. But all in the meantime, Santa Ana's army is marching straight up over here, making a beeline for where a cluster of troops were, small cluster, 
uh, in a little town called San Antonio. There were some regular troops in San Antonio led by a guy named William, William Travis. There were some militia led by a guy named Jim Bowie. You ever heard of the Bowie knife? That comes from him. Uh, and so they were there. And then some guys from other uh, United States had come down into Texas to try to help the Texans uh, win their independence. Uh, particularly a, a group of fighters from Tennessee led by a guy named Davy Crockett. So you got the guys led by William Travis, the regular military. You got the militia guys led by Jim Bowie. And then you got the Tennesseans led by Davy Crockett. And they hole up in San Antonio in a little mission church called the Alamo as Santa Ana's army is marching. And Santa Ana brought his army up to San Antonio in waves. He brought a big wave with a bunch of thousands of, of, of military guys, uh, soldiers, and then he would, brought these two or three other waves behind those guys with thousands more as they're marching towards San Antonio. Well, remember, all in the meantime, these guys are meeting over here to develop a declaration of independence for Texas. And they knew Santa Ana's army was coming. So they had a plan to send reinforcements to the San Antonio guys. But as committees tend to do, they talked about it too long. And by the time they sent the backups to San Antonio, it was too late because they talked about it too long. And so the San Antonio guys knew that this may be it. William Travis wrote a famous letter. My wife gave me a copy. I've got a copy of it in my office on the wall where he signed it, victory or death, at the end of his letter, because he knew what was coming. And so Santa Ana's army arrives at San Antonio, surround the Alamo, where these guys are holed up, and begin to bombard it for days, they fight. Santa Ana's army swelling to, some reports say, 10, 12, 15,000. And inside the Alamo, there's maybe 200 fighters, maybe, give or take, and they go back and forth, and they're fighting, and they're fighting, and ultimately the Alamo falls, and every fighter in the Alamo is killed. Santa Ana declares it a great victory. The Texans who are over here, you know, writing up their Declaration of Independence, hear what happens over there, and they're devastated. This is a massive defeat, a massive loss, a disappointment because their troops didn't get there in time. And so they recall their troops and they, they, they finish writing their document, and they appoint a new leader over their army, a guy named Sam Houston. Sam Houston's a pretty smart dude. That's what ended up happening. Santa Ana's troops kind of turned and went off to this little area around modern-day Houston. And Sam Houston met them out there on the battlefield of a place called San Jacinto, and they fought. The Texans, far outnumbered, defeated Santa Ana's troops took Santa Ana captive and held him prisoner until he signed a treaty saying Texas is independent. So they won a victory there. But you know what their victory cry was as they ran onto the field at San Jacinto? Those soldiers, their victory cry was, remember the Alamo as they are charging the field to fight their enemy, their oppressor, their dictator. What was a great defeat, the Alamo, a great disappointment became a cry of victory for them and won them a victory that day at San Jacinto in a way they never would have gained victory otherwise. What may seem to be confused disappointment may really be fuel for faith. And that's the case for the disciples of Jesus when Jesus died. They saw that moment of Jesus' death as a great defeat 
as a great disappointment. They had centered their entire lives around Jesus, and then he died. Jesus told them he was going to have to die. Jesus told them he was going to have to raise from the dead. But sometimes what happens, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I'm, I'm sure you've observed it in others. It's never happened to you, but always other people. You only hear what you want to hear. You know what I mean? Never you, only other people. Uh, selective hearing type of deal. They listened to all this stuff Jesus was saying, but when Jesus said, I've got to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to raise from the dead, none of them picked up on it. So when it actually happened, they run scared out of their minds because they're thinking, if Jesus is arrested and if Jesus is executed, then they're coming for us next. So the disciples go and they lock themselves in a room to prevent the enemy from getting to them, the, the Roman soldiers. So Jesus died on a Friday. But the way it worked back then is Saturday was their Sabbath day. It was their holy day. And so they couldn't do anything that would be unclean on the Sabbath days. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to participate in the Sabbath activities and Sabbath celebrations. And so with Jesus dying on a Friday, they had to get him off of the cross and buried before Saturday started. But Saturday for them didn't start like it does for us at midnight. You see, for them, Sabbath, Saturday, starts when the sun goes down on Friday evening. So they had until sunset to get Jesus off of the cross, his body off of the cross, and buried in a tomb. But they had this big process in order to honor the person who died that involved a lot of lotions, a lot of oils, and, and a lot of perfumes. And they didn't have time to do all of that because when Jesus died mid-afternoon, the sun is setting quick. And so they got to get him down and get him where he's going uh, into the tomb very, very quickly. And so they get Jesus' body off of the cross, and there's a tomb not too far away that's owned by a disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, and they take Jesus' body, and they put the body in the tomb. They just have enough time to cover the body with a burial cloth and to cover his head with a burial head covering. And then, as the sun is setting, it's like they back out of the tomb because it's Sabbath now, and they can't be touching him. Sabbath ends, and they intend to come back and complete this, this honoring burial process. And that is what happens on Sunday morning. So look at uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. It's on page 906, if you want to use a Bible on the pew rack in front of you. John, chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John who, who wrote this gospel, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, just for a second, try to put yourself in Mary Magdalene's shoes, right? She had thought Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, Jesus was her friend, walking around with him and learning from him for, for several years, but she also thought he was the Son of God. And then when Jesus died... It kind of blew all of their plans out of the water. And so they're grieving this, this deep level of grief. And then she comes to the tomb to complete the burial process uh, with, with these lotions and oils and perfumes. And she sees the stone gone, the body gone. She thinks somebody has stolen his body and desecrated her friend. The one she thought had been the son of... She thought somebody had defiled his grave. And so in the, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the disappointment, in the midst of, of the, the, 
you know, just shock of what could have happened if somebody, you know, stole the body out of the tomb. She runs back to the disciples. Peter and John are there. And she tells them, the body is gone. And Peter and John, just like the other disciples, are locked up because they're scared people are going to come and get them. But when they hear that, that the tomb may have been desecrated, they just jump up and book it. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now we believe that John is, a, is most likely the youngest disciple. He may not have been, uh, but we also believe that he wrote the book of Revelation, uh, maybe in the A.D. 90s. Um, and so he was, to live that long, he had to be pretty young at this point. And so naturally he would have outrun Peter. And they get to the tomb, and, and so they hear that Jesus' body is stolen, and so they just run out of that room, and they're making a beeline for the tomb as fast as they can possibly, you know, cut through the streets of Jerusalem. And they get out there to the tomb. John reaches the tomb first, uh, verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And so John gets to the tomb first, and, and it's, it's kind of a, I mean, it had to be a low... Uh, a rectangular opening and he kind of looks in because he doesn't want to go in it's still a tomb and he would make himself unclean and John just looks in and sees the body is gone there were little like little cutouts in the rock inside the the tomb that they the body would have been on uh, the body's gone the cloth is still there the head covering is still there and he doesn't know what to make of this because if a body's stolen the thieves aren't going to take the time to take the coverings off and lay them down nice and neat and folded and pretty and whatever. They would have token, taken it because the linen cloths would have been expensive. They would have been valuable, but they're still there in the tomb. And so John gets there, looks in, sees this. Verse 6, Peter, Peter's, I love Peter. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. So P Peter doesn't even slow down when he gets to the tomb is the image. John gets there, he stops, he looks in, Peter's running, huffing and puffing, he just flies right into the tomb. He didn't give any, you know, thought to decorum, any thought to making himself, he just runs in because he wants to see it himself. So he, he probably clips John as he's running in and he runs in the tomb and, and sees it, the, the burial place, body gone, linen cloth, head covering. Verse 6, And Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb, saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So they go in, it says, John believed whether he believed Jesus body was not there or he believed Jesus rose from the dead doesn't specify but it could be he believed Jesus rose from the dead but didn't know how to process that because as verse 9 said they didn't know that they didn't understand that scripture said he had to he had to die he had to raise and so they have the beginnings of what be a belief in the gospel Jesus dying and raising but they go back to their homes and again they lock themselves back up and so having been there and seen what they saw, that was very important. Because the book of Deuteronomy tells us in the law that you had to have two or three witnesses in order to submit evidence to court. And so now you've got two witnesses, Peter and John. Body's gone. First thing, Sunday morning, body's gone. 
And so you got two witnesses. So, I mean, they're not going to submit this to court, obviously, but you got two witnesses there. And the stone has been moved. Now, the stone was removed not to let Jesus out, but to let the world in, to let witnesses in to see that it was empty. But then you've got this other person there. Look at verse 11. She had gone to, Mary Magdalene had gone to tell Peter and John, body's gone, and then she came back with them. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, <laughs> I, I'm always amazed at this interaction. Um, Mary Magdalene, weeping uncontrollably at the tomb, looks in the tomb and sees two angels. Now, the angels weren't there when Peter and John were there. They didn't get to see the angels. Peter and John didn't get to have the interaction with the angels. Mary Magdalene does. And she looks in, and she sees these angels, and her reaction isn't, oh, man, there's angels. Something special must be happening. Now, her reaction is, somebody stole his body, and I don't know where he is. She didn't even ask the angels, do you guys know where he is? I mean, you're angels. She's not amazed that there's angels there. She's not taken aback. They don't have to tell her, fear not, because she's not fearing them. She has already made up her mind about the way the situation is. She has assumed the way the situation is playing out. Somebody stole Jesus' body. That it doesn't register to her, there's angels, so something special must be happening. So she says this to the angels, and then she turns around. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, we've had other interactions after Jesus has risen from the dead, not before this, but later on, where it says, like on the road to Emmaus, he encounters some guys on the road to Emmaus after he rose from the dead. And in the scripture it says, but it was deliberately hidden from them who he was. It doesn't say that here. It doesn't say that God deliberately hid from her who this was. He may have, and it just doesn't say that. But she turns around, and, she, and she's still weeping, so her eyes are full of tears. Have you ever had uncontrollable tears come, like that, that you, you, know, you couldn't start them, but they came and just fill your eyes up, like they glaze over with you know, the liquid of the tears, and everything's blurry, and you can't see what's going on kind of a situation. That may be what's going on. But she sees Jesus, and she doesn't know that it's him. How convicting, on, I mean, this is an aside, how convicting is that for us as well, though? How often do we see Jesus in our lives and we don't recognize he's there? Or we see Jesus moving, maybe speaking through a conversation with somebody else, but we don't recognize it's Jesus speaking through this other conversation because we're so caught up in getting our thing done. We're so caught up in what we think or how we think the situation's playing out. We've assumed this is the way it is that we completely miss he's right there the whole time. And so here, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus. She's grieving in the garden because she thinks he's dead and somebody stole his body. And he's standing right in front of her alive. I think of that old hymn. It's one of my favorites. How much peace we often forfeit because we don't take everything to the Lord in prayer. How quickly could, would her grief leave her if she realized this is Jesus? standing in front of her. 
How quickly would the peace come if she would realize this is Jesus standing in front of her? But she turns around, doesn't recognize Jesus. Uh, Verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? That first question. That's the exact same question the angels asked just a few verses ago. Woman, why are you weeping? What's going on here? Now, so she hears Jesus' voice and yet still does not recognize him. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, what you, it doesn't show it here in the English, uh, but the rest of that verse uh, kind of gives us an indication. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Uh, but that word that Jesus uses for Mary in the original language isn't a Greek word. New Testament's written in Greek. It's actually an Aramaic word. He says her name in Aramaic, which is, it's Miriam. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni. So she responds with the same language he uses. She doesn't say rabbi. She says this, Rabboni, which means teacher. She realizes who he is as he speaks to her. But this word Rabboni also doesn't just simply mean teacher. Rabbi simply means teacher. Rabboni means like, uh, uh, oh, my dearly loved teacher. Like, think through your mind of the, what you would consider the best teacher you've ever had in your life. A teacher you know cared for you, walked through thick and thin with you, did not leave you when everybody else did. A teacher who, who went above and beyond for you. That's the idea here. She says, my dearly loved teacher in this. Realizing it's him. And the image we get from the next verse is she kind of reaches out like she's going to give him a hug. And look at what he says. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now that doesn't mean you're not allowed to touch me anymore. Because he's going to show up to the disciples later on and they're going to touch him. Uh, But he says this because he has a job for her to do. There's something she needs to do first. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he said that, and that he had said these things to her. So he gives her something to do. Go and and, and tell, basically tell the full gospel. Yes, Jesus died, but Jesus also rose. So she was supposed to go and, and share the gospel with the disciples of all people. And she does that. But thinking through this, the question that I began to have as I was studying this was, who exactly is Mary Magdalene? Now, whether you know it or not, Mary Magdalene's only in Scripture five times. She's only in Scripture five times. And four out of the five times have to do with the crucifixion and resurrection. And this is the only place where it's an extended narrative where she plays a key role. The other time, she's just listed among several people. And so we ask her, who is Mary Magdalene exactly? Well, we get a little glimpse of that in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is out doing ministry, and she's mentioned. In Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1, soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, twelve disciples, and also some women 
who he had healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we have uh, uh, these women that are listed here. And it says, Mary called Magdalene. Now, Magdalene means from Magdala. Magdala was a city, uh, possibly her hometown. She's from the city called Magdala, so they call her Magdalene, because that's where she's from. Um, and we see there that, that these women that are mentioned provided for the ministry of Jesus and the disciples out of their means. They basically tithe. They, they provided for the ministry out of the money they had. So she was fairly well-to-do in order to provide for the ministry, the goings and comings, the food, the uh, travel expenses of at least Jesus and the disciples, 13 grown men. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had to feed 13 grown men, but they eat a lot of food. And so they're providing and they're uh, paying for all of this. And so she had some money. Even uh, if you notice just a the chapter we looked at in John chapter 20, when it talks about, when she mentions to Jesus, thinking he's the gardener, if you will give me the body, I will take and take care of him. The implication is I will take and I will pay for his burial. That she's able to do that without even a second thought. So she's got some money. She's from a city called Magdala. But then if you look there too, what does it say? She's been possessed by seven demons and Jesus healed her. So it's not just like one demon or two demons. I mean, seven demons. She was possessed by seven demons. And Jesus came and he healed her and, and got those demons and, and got rid of them. So this formerly demon-possessed woman is the first person that Jesus chose to be the first proclaimer of the gospel, the first preacher of the gospel, the very first evangelist in scripture is this formerly demon-possessed woman. And she goes out there and does it for Jesus. You see, who you were has no bearing on whether Jesus can use you now. Who you were has no bearing on whether Jesus can use you now or not. Jesus can use anybody and everybody if they're simply willing to be used. You're simply willing to be used. Jesus can accomplish a lot. I mean, with us as people, we have a list in our mind when somebody does something, that that's, that's the never-to-be-used-again list. They've done that. We're Xing them. They are done. Never. They, we're not going to allow them to do this, not going to let them go there. They can't proclaim anything. They are done because they made their mistakes, and they got to live with their mistakes. Now, there's consequences in this life, absolutely. But as long as you're alive, Jesus still has something for you to do. You can make a mistake all day long. But if you're still alive, you're not done yet. You've still got something for Jesus to do through you. Here's Mary Magdalene, a woman possessed by seven demons. That's her history. That's her label. Demon-possessed woman. And she's the one Jesus chose first to share the gospel. She didn't choose John, the beloved disciple, Jesus didn't choose those other disciples. He didn't choose Peter, but Peter just denied him. He didn't choose, you know, some like Thaddeus. I, I know you all know the great church history of Thaddeus, right? He didn't choose Andrew. Andrew's only known in Scripture for bringing people to Jesus, but Jesus didn't choose him. Jesus chose the formerly demon-possessed woman to be the very first one to bring the gospel to somebody. He chose her on purpose, specifically. Now, something else about Mary Magdalene, it's not in Scripture anywhere, 
But it's something, honestly, people have gossiped about her for millennia. It's been said that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. You ever heard that? Anybody ever, you ever heard something? Yeah. There's some people who have said that. There's books that have been written about it. Some churches teach it. But it's not anywhere in Scripture. So she's been labeled by some people as, as a prostitute. But what someone else thinks about you or what someone else labels you has no bearing on what Jesus thinks about you, has no bearing on what Jesus can do with you or through you. And Jesus chooses her to be the first evangelist because she was willing to follow him. She's the only one left in the garden. Peter and John left. The other disciples didn't even come. They were too scared. And she, she left everything behind her to follow Jesus. She left her past behind her. She left other people's opinions behind her. She left her own plans for her future, her, her plans of what she wanted to do with her money. Remember, she's got a lot of money. And I'm sure if, if you know, you've got money, you've got plans for that money, what you want to do with it. She left her plans for that money behind and gave that money to Jesus for him to accomplish something great with it. She, she left behind her assumptions and expectations about what her life was supposed to look like, and she took off and she followed Jesus, which honestly is the exemplification of something Jesus taught in a very famous teaching from Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? If you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus said you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow him. Deny yourself. Now, I don't know the inner workings of your hearts. I know the inner working of my heart. And I know it's not an easy deal to deny yourself. You can put on a good front and act like you're denying yourself, but deep down, a lot of times we're not. We're serving our own purposes, serving our own wants and desires. Even if we feel like it, we're, we're putting it on the DL and we're shoving it back, we, we, we really, a lot of times, are going for what we want and what will make us the most comfortable, make us the most happy. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, that's, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, what you have to do is deny yourself. Your personal preferences, your wants, your assumptions, your expectations, your desire for control. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to give up control. You cannot follow Jesus and have control. You cannot follow Jesus and think that you know best. You cannot follow Jesus and obsess over your expectations and assumptions about a situation or an individual. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to deny your own sinful thinking. You've got to follow Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus and feel like you're owed something. Feel like you deserve something. Feel like you've earned the right to something. Because in Jesus, I don't know if you knew this or not, we got no rights. You know what I deserve? You know what my right is? Punishment in eternal hell. But he died so all my sins would be forgiven. He rose from the dead so I can live after I die. I didn't earn it. What I earned is not good. It's bad. 
So if I deserve anything, that's what I deserve. But he came and died for me. And so if I'm going to follow Jesus, I cannot act like I deserve any of that. I can't you know, act like, like I, I have to control everything. Like my hands are the best hands when it comes to dealing with a situation. It's not. His hands are the best hands. And so I have to release control. I have to release assumptions and expectations. I've got to release this feeling of, of deserving or, or earning something. It, it has to leave. And I've simply got to follow Jesus. We have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And so here's Mary Magdalene back in John chapter 20. Next to the tomb, in the garden, she honestly isn't thinking about her past in that moment. Not thinking about her former assumptions or expectations or desires of what to do with her money. In the moment before she, she realizes this is Jesus, she's caught up in her grief. She's caught up in, in what her assumptions were about Jesus being dead and, and assuming his body was stolen. And that's where all of her mind's attention are. That's why she doesn't recognize the angels. That's why she doesn't recognize Jesus. But then she looks up and she recognizes Jesus and sees Jesus. And you know what happens in that instant? All the grief and the pain disappear. All of it disappear. Because she gives Jesus her attention. She gave Jesus her attention and she found relief from her worries and struggles. That is something that, that is said in scripture as well. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an eternal rock. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Perfect peace. Try to wrap your head around that for a second. If you were to examine your life, would you say there was any point in your life you had perfect peace? Like the complete absence of anxiety, worry, or uh, uh, busyness whatsoever. Complete and perfect peace. He says in that scripture, Tony, jump back to verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, stayed on Jesus. Not spiritually distracted, not caught up in these other things, but stayed on him. You keep him. So look at, what, look at what's happening in that verse. If our mind is on Jesus, if our attention is on Jesus, stayed on Jesus, not on Jesus for five seconds and then over here. Not on Jesus for five seconds and then caught up in our to-do list. Not on Jesus for five seconds and then on that email. Because when we were going to the Bible app, our thumb accidentally hit the email and it popped up and we saw that person's name and we get wrapped up in what that person might be saying to us. And we go, I can't go back to the Bible app, but all your time you're thinking about what that person actually said in their email. But it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you stayed on you. So what's happening is that Jesus exchanges your attention for his peace. Jesus exchanges your attention for his peace. You give him your attention, he'll give you his peace. That's good exchange. You give him your attention, he'll give you his peace. So often though, we give our attention to all this other stuff. And we don't have any peace. And we wonder why we don't have any peace because we're not giving Jesus any of our attention. 
Or we may give him little snippets of our attention. Jesus, I'll give you a little bit. Jesus, I got three minutes real quick. You can have my attention for three minutes, but it's really not even three minutes. Jesus, you can have my attention when, 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 I, when I say, dear God. That's, that's all the attention I, got, I can afford right now, Jesus. And we wonder why we don't have any peace. We wonder why anxiety is the number one searched issue in America. We wonder why kids are struggling with that on a level that no previous generation has ever known. We wonder why it's because of a lack of attention on Jesus. Jesus exchanges your attention for his peace. And then here, Mary Magdalene, having received peace, she's given something to do by Jesus that required a peaceful heart. Jesus couldn't send her to do what she needed to do if she wasn't in peace. So she has a peaceful heart, and then she's instructed to go and tell the disciples about Jesus' resurrection. But the disciples, now John doesn't give us that, that part of the story. Uh, we're we're going to go over to the book of Luke and see that. The disciples were not very receptive to her gospel presentation. It's in Luke chapter 24, then in verse 11. But she shows up, she shares the gospel, and then Luke writes, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So Mary's gospel presentation, Mary saying Jesus died, yes, but he also rose from the dead. It says that was an idle tale. Now that word idle literally means worthless or confusing or doesn't make any logical sense. The disciples are sitting in the room and they hear Mary Magdalene say, Jesus is alive and I saw him. And they say, that don't make any logical sense. Like, we, we, we saw him die. We saw him give his last breath. We heard him say, it is finished, cry out, exhale, and then slump on the cross. We know, we saw him take him down from the cross, put it, we, he is dead. Don't make any logical sense. They've got no context outside of Lazarus and, and the, the little boy in the city of Nain raising from the dead. And, and, but they say, this, this cannot be. It, it's not possible. It doesn't make any logical sense. That he rose from the dead. But sometimes, when you do and say what Jesus wants you to do and say in his timing, it's not going to make any logical sense to other people. And making other people believe or, or understand when what they really want is, is for what you're saying or doing to make logical sense to them. They assume their logical sense is the best logical sense, and they want it to make the most logical sense to them. Making them understand is not your responsibility. Did Jesus tell Mary Magdalene, go in there, share the gospel with them, and argue with them until they get it? Here's, here's 15 points. I want you to walk through the 15 points with them, Mary Magdalene, and you just beat them down until they just can't handle it. You nag them until they believe. Now, he just said, you go and tell them. He said, you go and tell them, and then they've got to decide whether they're going to believe or not. You see, your responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus. Your responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus. That's to do what Jesus told you to do. Maybe what Jesus already told you to do, like we looked at last week, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Maybe... That is what you have been called to do where you're at. It's what we've all been called to do wherever we're at. But following Jesus may mean sharing the gospel and continuing to share the gospel in a kind and loving and generous way. But 
Sometimes we can't help as human beings when somebody expresses a, a feeling or opinion that we're not making any logical sense. And we feel like we've got to keep talking to try to convince them of something they're supposed to have faith in. When you convince somebody to faith, it's not really faith. That's head knowledge. Faith is a heart action. And that's a hard thing for us to do is, is to give up an argument that we know we're right in. Not like an argument with your friend or your spouse or your kids or your parents where you know you're right. But like spiritually, you know you're right. Jesus is Lord. It's hard for us to give up an argument and surrender when continuing the argument would just make it worse. I don't know if this has ever been your case. I've seen it happen and stopped it in, in mid-sentence. But when somebody is trying to, let's say, not win somebody for the Lord, but make a biblical argument. But in trying to make a biblical argument in favor of God and Scripture, they do it in a very ungodly way, in an ungodly tone with an ungodly spirit, devoid of all humility and love, and just beat the person down with what should be an offering of love. I heard a, um, <laughs> I should have been, this just came in my head. Uh, I was showing it to, to Jared this, this last week and my boys uh, and Hope um, and Katie, uh, but uh, I found this, it was a voicemail somebody had uploaded um, to social media and uh, of a situation, this guy was going to meet his friend and he got caught in traffic and right in front of him there's a fender bender and one vehicle, uh, it has four senior adult ladies in it and uh, the vehicle uh, that bumped him had a young man in his low 20s and he gets out of the car going to check if they're all right and one of the ladies gets out of the car and starts screaming at him. It starts hitting him with her purse. And the guy who's retelling the story on, on the voicemail is just laughing out of his head. I mean, it, it, it's really funny just because of that guy's reaction. She's coming out. She's getting out. Oh, she hit him in the head with her purse. Lady with a little black purse. Comes. She tomahawked him in the head, man. And then this other lady gets out of the purse, and she hits him with her purse. And, he, and the guy retelling the story says, everything flew out of her purse. It's everywhere. She's Oh, she's got a Bible. She, she hit him in the head with her Bible. And then the guy, he, he's running away scared, and they get back in their car. But, but I get caught with that and thinking, here's a the, here's the lady with with the word of God that's supposed to be the opportunity for grace and mercy and love. And she is not just figuratively, literally beaning the guy in the face with it because of a fender bender. Just, bah! And I'm sure it wasn't a Bible like this. I mean, it's probably a MacArthur Bible or a K. Arthur Bible, something like this. about eight times this size. It weighs about 90 pounds. And I mean, she just took him down dislocated his jaw with scripture we have this this gift in God's word to point people to Jesus and we don't often treat it in how we use it in the best way possible whether we're trying to win an argument or 
uh, trying to have an argument or, or trying to push someone down or maybe, maybe what we're trying to do is we want people to be happy with us and so we'll agree with a lot of points that they're saying even though they're not biblical or, or, or we'll try to uh, uh, make them happy uh, in how we present what we present. Um, but again, going back to Mary Magdalene, Jesus didn't tell Mary Magdalene, you go in there, you make those disciples happy, you tell them everything they need to, to, to know to get to that point. No, Jesus has said, you go in there and you tell them the gospel, Mary. And then what ends up happening is a few hours later, Jesus shows up. And they don't believe until they have a personal interaction with Jesus. And that's the way it's going to be for all of us. To believe, you have to have a personal interaction with Jesus. Mary Magdalene didn't try to make them happy, didn't try to, you know, pursue their, their approval. Because if she's proven, trying to seek their approval, she's not seeking the approval of God. Paul said that in Galatians chapter 1. Mary Magdalene's instruction from Jesus was not to make the disciples understand and accept what she was saying. Her simple instruction from Jesus was share the full gospel. Yes, he died, but he's alive now. He rose now, and then they had to come to that decision of belief on their own. And so that's the decision we all have to make. Will you follow Jesus and follow him alone and tell people the full gospel, demonstrate the full gospel? Will you follow Jesus in your everyday life? Follow him. That's your responsibility as a follower of Jesus, to follow Jesus. His demonstration, the way he lived out, the, the, the message of the Father. Will you follow Jesus? Maybe today what you need to do, sitting where you are, you need to follow Jesus for the first time. You need to put back the head knowledge trying to make all the T's cross and I's dot, which they do if you really dig into Scripture, and stop listening to the voices that take Scripture out of context and twist it to their own evil intent. And what you need to do is move the, the, the knowledge of Jesus from your head to your heart and believe in him, have faith in him, and believe that he's the son of God, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead, that Mary Magdalene witnessed, he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Maybe today you need to believe in that for the first time. And if you do, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be right here talking, uh, praying. Love to pray with you. Love to talk to you. Love to celebrate what God's doing in your life. Maybe you need prayer today. Prayer for the people that, that God would have you share the gospel with, just as Mary Magdalene shared the gospel with the disciples. Maybe you've seen this prayer pew, and, and I've been up day, you know, throughout this entire week coming in here multiple times praying over this prayer pew. We're putting names on this pew of people who need to hear the gospel, people you know of in your family, people you interact with throughout the week, people you're going to see at school this week, names on the pew that need Jesus. And we're going to pray over them continually. And so maybe that's what you need to do. God's already put somebody on your heart. You know you're going to run into tomorrow. You need to come up, write something on one of these little post-its. Uh, they're extra sticky, so they'll stick good. And, and pop it on this pew, and it will be prayed over throughout this entire week leading up into next Sunday as we get ready for these next few months as we're going to pray throughout the month of September and we're going to share the gospel throughout the month of October. And so what you need to do in following Jesus is write that name down, pray over that name, and you need to be the one to fulfill that prayer and bringing the gospel to that person. And so maybe you need to do that. Come and put a name here. So whether you need to know Jesus or somebody in your life needs to know Jesus, 
we all today have an opportunity to follow Jesus. 